the Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Two, Siege Fall. Chapter Twelve, Difficult Meeting. Come on, Dad, wake up. Dustin patted Martin's face. You fell asleep in the chair again. You've had like four whole hours of sleep. Come on, it's time to give it the big test. Martin yawned hard. He shuffled into the bathroom and splashed a little cold water on his face. It didn't help. He was simply sleeping, standing up, and wet. He poured a half-basin full, stuck his face in, and blew bubbles. He came up blinking and sputtering. That helped. Coming out of the bedroom, dressed for the day, he bumped into Trish, coming out of their room. Oh, Martin, she said. So, what happened last night? Dustin relieved me on watch instead of you. Martin tried, but couldn't quite contain yet another deep yawn. He was also not the brightest bulb in the tool shed when he first woke up. Uh, Dustin wanted to get up early uh, and make wood chips for Tin Man. Oh, oh, I see, she smiled coyly. That makes sense, I guess. Well, I have to go fetch some water. She rubbed past him even though there was room enough in the hallway to get by. Martin guessed that she hadn't yet looked upon her behavior yesterday with the horror that he had imagined. He was going to have to set her straight somehow, and in a way that didn't send anyone else in the house into rages. Life's minefield was getting bigger. Breakfast was more cheerful than usual. It helped that they had saved up enough eggs that everyone could have one egg to go with their cream of wheat. Adam was less cheerful, despite the egg bonus, but Trish seemed to be trying to cheer him up, that things would get better. The Perez family waited until everyone else had finished before they came to the table. They shared the contents of a can of corn from their box. They slept on the floor, but Margaret brought them some blankets. They had the blankets all folded neatly. Their things were all packed in a little pile, as if expecting a truck to come and whisk them away at any moment. Martin had no idea where they would end up. He just knew that they couldn't become additions to his already full household. Dustin was like a kid on Christmas morning. He had chopped up two more buckets of chunks and fueled up Tin Man. It was finally showtime. He spun the flywheel while Martin lit the burn chamber. The white smoke started to flow, then slowly turned to blue. Dustin held the lighter to the jet. The blue smoke turned into a little blue flame. Okay, Dad, Dustin said. Today's the day. Go for it. Martin got a firm footing beside the generator. His hand gripped the pull cord. He nodded to Dustin. Dustin flipped his homemade diverter valve, but kept spinning the flywheel. The jet of blue flame went out. Martin pulled hard on the cord. The generator spun, but only made the muted glug-glug-glug sound of muffled valves opening and closing no combustion. Dustin adjusted the air bypass valve. Everyone stood in a small semicircle around Tin Man and the generator. If their experiment failed, they would have a full audience to fail in front of. Martin pulled again. Nothing but glug glug glug. Dustin spun the flywheel faster and motioned for Martin to try again. Martin adjusted his footing and pulled. The engine sputtered a few times, but it didn't catch. We got a spark that time. Maybe a bit less air. This might be like the choke or something. 
Dustin closed the air valve just a little more. Martin pulled again. The engine sputtered. It ran rough, but kept sputtering. Dustin slowly opened the air valve. The engine smoothed out to run almost like normal. A few skips continued, but it kept running. Dustin leapt around, whooping like a tribesman. Everyone cheered the success and was amused by a joyous Dustin. Except Judy. Her smile was more one of embarrassment. Let's try it under load, shouted Martin. The little generator was very loud, the loudest noise they had heard in a long time. Dustin carried over the battery from his car. He hooked up the little red and black jumpers from the 12-volt ports. The engine labored for a moment, but recovered at a slightly lower tone. The little gauge on the generator indicated 13.1 volts. The battery was charging. Congratulatory high-fives were shared. "'What's all this?' Nick shouted as he joined the circle of spectators. Martin explained in short, easily shouted phrases about tin man and wood gas. "'Here's your box,' shouted Margaret. She handed Martin a cardboard box with more jars of salsa and jam. "'Good luck trading today!' She gave him a little pat on the arm. Nick and Martin walked up the road toward town. The sound of the generator carried farther than Martin had expected. He looked back. The house was well out of view, but the little generator's rapid putt-putt-putt carried through the bare trees as if it were only fifty yards away. Silencing that motor would be their next project. Martin could see Adam and Trish take to the road, too. Apparently, they were attending the meeting as well. "'That's pretty cool,' said Nick. "'And that thing runs off plain old wood?' Martin nodded. "'Think I could bring over two of my car batteries to charge them up? I've got some little camp things that use twelve volts.' Oh, "'I sure hope I can trade for some food at this meeting,' Nick said, mostly to himself. "'You said they had food out for trade, like deer meat and cheese and things?' "'They did last Monday,' said Martin. "'Who knows what this week will bring?' When they climbed the stairs to town hall, Landers and Haddock were shaking hands as people entered. "'Ma, more jam, Simmons!' Landers pointed to the box. "'Yes, sir.' "'I bought a can of beans this time.' Landers winked. Uh, no wife or other, uh, nope, no, just me and my neighbor Nick. Wife or what? asked Nick. Never mind. Looks like we need to claim some chairs pretty quickly. The room is fuller than last time. As they took a pair of seats along the right side, Lance Walker approached Martin with a cardboard box. Hey, Martin, wanted to give you back these, uh, things you gave me last night but figured it'd be best in a box. Martin looked inside. There lay the strange-looking long-barreled pistol and the chunky black pistol from the Tuner Boys. Carlos's little revolver sat below them. The revolver's neat, said Lance. Soviet-era army sidearm. Must be forty, fifty years old. The bluing is worn, but otherwise it's in good shape. Nice wooden grips, too. I only had a dozen thirty-twos that fit it. They're in a little bag there. Hope that helps him out. The other one is a high point nine mil. Nothing fancy or interesting. Yeah, gun guys tend to rag on them all the time, but they work okay. Full magazine on that one. Uh, what about that other long one? Martin asked. He wanted to get it out and look at it, but a crowded meeting was not the place. People might have weapons hidden away, much like he had his nine mil in his pocket, 
but waving a gun around was certain to be frowned upon. "'Ah, now, that one's a mystery,' said Lance. "'I haven't seen anything like that since the seventies. Even then, it was rare. It's a heavy brute. Had only four rounds in it. Long ones, like they were magnums or something. Odd size, too, between a forty and a forty-four. I didn't have anything that fit it. No idea where they'd get ammo for it, but they must have. Wow, 1970s, huh? Martin wondered out loud. No, not that gun. It just looks like the one I saw back then. This one's made new, and not all that long ago. Polymer grip still got that smell to him. Not made all that careful, either. Machine marks all over on the inside. Sorry I can't tell you more. It's just an odd duck. Well, better get to my seat. Looks like we're starting. Landers rapped on the plastic table. The routine was becoming familiar enough that people quieted down more quickly. Many of the faces showed eager, or worried, anticipation. Thanks for coming, everyone, said Landers. And even better turn out this week. That's encouraging. What happened to the FEMA truck? A man blurted out. Many heads nodded in support of the question. Yeah, we'll get to that. First, I'd like to let the chiefs give their reports. Chief Berg? The police chief looked more haggard than the week before. The bags under his eyes spoke of less sleep. His uniform lacked the crisp folds and seams it had last week. Thanks, Jeff. We run out of gas at the town tank for the cruiser, so we're not doing patrols anymore. We have made some progress on the radio network. We have workable links between the police station and several points around town. On the board over there, I've posted a list of links like Mr. Murdot here, up on Stockman Hill, and Mrs. Church there, up on Spring Pond. Check out the list and talk to the link people. You may be able to connect to them even if you can't connect to the town directly. Also, we have had reports of a group of beggars, three men, two women, with shopping carts, making the rounds. Reports are they forced their way into a home on Walden, roughed up the homeowner, and took a quantity of food. Stay careful out there. We won't be able to assist you, especially the further out from town you live. The chief sat down heavily. The fire chief rose to read off a small scrap of paper. The department is low on fuel, too. We responded to one house fire last week. We were able to save most of the structure, since the house was just up the highway. The couple in there got out okay. They moved into a back bedroom since it was undamaged. The other two house fires were reported far too late. There was nothing but burned-out shells. Please be careful with your wood stoves and candles. It doesn't take long for a fire to spread. And now that the shelter is closed, there's nowhere to put you up. Thanks, Chief, said Landers. Yes, Candace, I see your hand. But let's get back to your question in a minute. We have a related issue that we need to discuss first. Before we can get to that, we ought to hear what Walter has to say from the outside world. Walter? Walter rose and turned to the crowd. Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah, but it ain't good. Things have been taking a nasty turn out there. Seems that Ohio thing started a bit of a fight. In a nutshell, a whole bunch of states in the middle and the south uh, banded together, refusing to comply with executive orders that Senator Culp has been issuing. States in the northeast and west coasts have sided with Culp. Lots of harsh words flying both ways. 
Congress is divided, just like the country. Lots of congressmen hold to Speaker Sunderland as the legal chief executive. Most D.C. still backs Colton, but governors in the heartland states have thrown in with the Speaker. Sunderland is still stuck in Montana, but has started appointing himself cabinet members and such. Culp calls them all traitors and rebels. The Heartlanders call Culp the traitor. Now it seems we have two governments, and they're not playing well with each other. If there's a silver lining to all of this, it's that the military voted, if that's the word for it, uh, not to listen to either side. Some general, I didn't catch his name, said all the branches agreed to defend the nation from outside threats, uh, but refused to interfere in domestic affairs. Uh, that Ohio thing gave them a really bad taste. So the upshot, ladies and gentlemen, is that the rest of the country is too busy fighting amongst themselves. I kind of doubt we're on anybody's aid priority list. Sorry I couldn't bring better news. Walter sat down. Sally put her arm around him. Landers turned to face the audience. Thanks, Walter. Speaking of aid, I know that many of you are wondering why that FEMA truck left last Wednesday before everyone in line got a box of food. It's kind of complicated, but the uh, bottom line is that Mr. Quinn was not happy at how little of the things he wanted done had been done. He seemed to take a great deal of umbrage at that and decided to take his truck to Nutfield. So what did you do that made him mad? asked Peter from the front row. Well, he had some lists of things, uh, paperwork, that we were supposed to be filling out, and we hadn't. We had some other lists started, but uh, he said that those were irrelevant. You're dancing around, Jeff, admonished Peter. Come on, then what didn't you do? Mike Wilder, less inhibited about maintaining decorum, chimed in. For one thing, Quinn's information packet said that we had to list all the CCL registrations, get the members list from the Rod and Gun Club, and there was a form for the names and addresses of folks who haven't been on either two lists, but we knew that had uh, collections. The paperwork wasn't all that clear, added Haddock, but it sure sounded like the next step was supposed to be gathering up all the guns. Why else would the form ask for the sizes of lockable storage rooms? That's not so unreasonable, said Candace. We've already seen where some gun-wielding ruffians have assaulted our people. What if more of these criminals were to gain access to all of those guns? No one would be safe. Thank you, Candace, Landers said in a firm tone. We certainly don't want any ruffians to get a hold of any guns. I urge you all to be very careful. Don't open your doors unless you know who's out there, and keep some means of defense close at hand. But, interrupted Candace, if people have guns near their doors, the ruffians will have an easier time grabbing them. At least the people who have guns, if they even needed guns in the first place, should have them safely locked away where the bad people can never find them. Candace, I really didn't call on you, scolded Landers. Wait until I call on you. Okay? Yeah, thank you. Wilder continued. So, that was the first thing Quinn didn't like. We didn't have the gun information started, and I told him that we weren't going to. That soured his mood. 
He cheered up a bit that we had filled out parts of the available movable assets form, though, said Landers. It didn't take too long to list out the town's dump truck and two pickups, a cruiser, and a fire department. We had all those records on file already. I thought he would have been pleased with the lists that I had started, added Haddock. From the census forms, it seemed like they were asking about our people. So I made a list of elderly that needed some medical care, the sick in need of medications, and the medications they needed. I also listed the children and other special needs individuals. Landers shook his head. But that wasn't what Quinn's paperwork requested. He was pretty darn adamant about that. His forms requested the names of healthy men, ages 18 to 40 only, and women, ages 14 to 30. He was asking for the opposite of what we expected, the healthy man, not the needy. Wilder pounded the table. I was totally against giving him, or anyone else, a list of the young women in this town. I didn't like it, and I told him, he pounded the table again. Yes, yes, Landers tried to soothe Wilder. You certainly did tell him so. I'm afraid our cordial briefing spun out of control after that. He accused us of not complying with federal law and threatened to have us all arrested. That didn't help Mike's mood any. Landers tried to smile to lighten things, but it was far from enough. That's when Quinn announced that our town was out of compliance with federal regulations and therefore not eligible for federal aid. That it was our own fault and that he was taking his truck to Nutfield. I guess he had been in contact with the town councilman down there, and they were much more cooperative about filling out his paperwork than we had been. The rest, well, you all saw. The people of the audience silently looked on, as if expecting more. Yeah, that's it, really. Yeah, okay, Candace. What would you like to say? Candace stood, half facing the selectman, half to the crowd. This seems to be a dangerous situation, Jeff. I don't think it's wise to ignore federal law. You could get into a lot of trouble. And I don't think it's fair to the citizens of this town, who are growing hungrier and hungrier by the day. And just to let a little paperwork stand in the way between our poor hungry citizens and life-sustaining meals that the government wants to give us. Landers stood up slowly and with gravitas. I agree with you, Candace. Yeah, to a degree. This is a very serious matter. People are getting low on supplies. Some are getting hungry. So we, the board of selectmen of your town, decided that we would seek the will of the people on this question. Landers paused as he studied a folded piece of paper. I'm going to ask for a vote. Listen carefully and wait until I've finished. Please raise your hands to vote yes if you want us to comply with the federal forms. This may or may not restore the flow of federal aid to our town. We cannot guarantee anything. That is totally out of our control. Yeah, okay, I've finished. Raise your hands if you want us to fill out the forms. Several hands went up. Candace's was the most animated. A few young ones in the middle. An old couple and a woman by herself had their hands raised a bit more tentatively. Martin glanced back to see if Trish and Adam had their hands raised. They didn't. Okay, yeah, thank you for voting, said Landers. We respect everyone's right to an opinion. Now, listen carefully and wait until I've finished. 
Please raise your hands if you, the people of Cheshire, vote no that you do not want us to fill out the federal forms. Keep in mind that by voting no, it is more than likely that there will be no more federal aid. Okay, I've finished. Can I see a show of hands? The vote was overwhelming. The people of Cheshire, as hungry as they might soon be, voted no. Unlike some other votes at town meetings, there was no cheering or applauding the results. Everyone knew the seriousness of their choices. Okay, then, Landers said gravely. The no's have it. Looks like we're on our own. Ah, a difficult vote indeed. My apologies for the shorter-than-average episode this week. When I was recording Chapter 12, it actually ran over an hour long. That seemed a bit too long for one podcast episode, so I decided to break it into two, not quite equal halves. Come back next week for the conclusion of Chapter 12, where the meeting takes a more constructive turn. See you then.